you sit and stare at your phone screen. You even scroll a bit for inspiration. As an entrepreneur, you're supposed to post every day, right? You know you need to post something today, but what? What if you had 30 days with the storytelling prompts to give you inspiration? And best part, it's free. What? These thought-provoking prompts will get your creative juices flowing and help you attract and connect with your audience in a more meaningful way. Designed to be used on any platform, from lighthearted posts about your business journey to reflective ones about the why behind what you do, this story prompt calendar makes it easy for you to attract and nurture your soulmate customer so they can convert to sales no matter what your niche. Get your 30-day content calendar now and say goodbye to that blank page stare. Go to www.bnickdemus.com forward slash 30-day calendar to get yours free. This is the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Demas. Let's go. Welcome back to the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I have a guest with me today who, as we were sitting here beforehand, I realized that is probably, not probably, definitely, the, the guest who I have known the longest. Uh, we met when it's I was your mother. It's your mother. <laughs> my mother's here today. Now my mother is not here today, but a good close <laughs> second, uh, dear to my heart. Uh, somebody who met me when I was 19 years old. I was 19 years old in Summerstock, and uh, you know, when I think back of who I was then and what the the journey that I've taken, and this is a this is somebody that's uh, long term here. So, Bobby, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Yes, and it has been a long time. <laughs> you know, but you live and learn and, you know, relationships, uh, friendships, everything, you know, is, is circular, you know, and the ones that are meant to stay in your life come back. Yeah, I mean, we were babies. I, I don't well, know. Well, you were a baby. I was, I was, I had been, I had been like four years out of college by that time that we worked. So um, I'm a little older than you. You're a, a tad <laughs> bit older than me. Ironically, that production, I was cast by by accident. I remember auditioning and getting uh, like four callbacks for the entire season and didn't hear anything. And then I get a call that was like, we need you for the season. We need you to do X, Y, and Z. And then in Singing in the Rain, that's where we met in, in the chorus of Singing in the Rain. And I have to say that that time was very pivotal for me personally mm. in that I had just dropped out of college. I had moved to New York to do a tour, a national tour, and then that job happened. It was a theater that was falling apart. We worked with incredible people there, which is wild when you think the fact that we got to work with Stephen Schwartz and we, you know, yeah. we got to work with these wonderful artisans, but the theater itself was falling apart. They weren't paying us. Our paychecks were bouncing. Yeah. But I also met my future business partner in producing there. Who was uh, that? Francine Bazaar who was the wardrobe supervisor at the time. Oh, my God. I that, Wow, I remember her. Yeah, and years oh, years God. later, we we became business partners. She became the financial partner backing of my, my entertainment company, which That's is crazy, incredible. which is crazy. But that was a pivotal time. I was involved with a, in a very toxic relationship at that point. It was not 
a pleasant place to be. The man was super physically and mentally abusive, financially abusive. And by the time that they stopped paying our paying on our paychecks, and um, like I said to you before too, I went to the store and bought macaroni and cheese boxes because they were 59 cents. And I figured, okay, I can at least eat a box of macaroni and cheese a day to get through this. Yeah, and then I, I had to call it quits, you know, by, by, by the end of that run. And, you know, it was just, it was exhausting. And what was more exhausting was the mental abuse I was dealing with on outside of what we were dealing with with the theater. So it was the perfect storm. Mm. And I came back to New York. I survived that relationship for one more year, believe it or not, and then started exiting that. It was a horrible situation, but I was left broke, and I was already broke, you know, so, but then trying to reestablish. My goal was always to work on Broadway, and it still is, you know. I mean, you know, even though I have Broadway credits, I have Broadway credits from behind the scenes. But that being said, I was also a trapeze artist, which a lot of people did not know, that I had been studying trapeze while I was in New as soon as I came to New York almost in 87, I think was my first training. So I had this other skill that was sort of on the back burners because I did summer stock, a couple of other summer stock gigs, but they all got dwarfed because the trapeze work was picking up in New York. Once I left that horrible relationship and I actually started focusing on my trapeze work, that's where financially things kicked in because circus was paying so much more than being an actor. I think when we were in Singing in the Rain, I think we were making 175 or 250 a week or something like that. It was something ridiculous. And that's a union house. Like we were in a union house. I know. It still blows my mind. And then within six months of returning back to New York, getting rid of that relationship, I got a job in Las Vegas, making $1,500 a week, doing seven minutes a night in the air, trapeze. And I was like, casino work, perfect. I got it, this is cool. I was making so much more as, as a circus performer that I didn't even look back at theater. And it wasn't until the late 90s when people started to revisit the idea of the musical Barnum Carnival. So it started to bubble up around 97 to 2003, I think. And then I started getting work as an aero sequence designer and a trainer. And I would go into musicals like Barnum and I would basically train the cast to do circus skills. So I was the on-site trainer and I was in the show. And also because I knew everything and I knew the show so well, I became the standby for Barnum. I became the standby for the ringmaster. So I had that combination of circus bring me back to theater, which led to my first Broadway credit, which is The Frogs. And then shortly thereafter, I started to get a string of Barnums. It was sort of bubbling up. I did it at Mack Hayden. I did it in Broward County. I did it in Seattle, in Texas. So it was just like bouncing up all over the place. So it was like every like three months, I was doing another production of Barnum. And, and it was, you know, it was very, it was a very fruitful life having that Plus, I also got the job as the director of the Trapeze Academy in Brooklyn. So we had this giant rehearsal studio for circus. So it was the perfect place to bring all those things together. Well, I witnessed this, right? I was watching this sort of happen <laughs> for you. And as we do, you know, when we start together as kids, we, you might have been a tad bit older of a kid, but you were still a kid. Let's the be older honest. brother. Yeah, the <laughs> older brother. 
And as you're, you watch people and you watch where their path takes them, and it's nonlinear in general. And one of the reasons that I really wanted you to come onto the podcast today was to talk about this nonlinear journey because you didn't have that straight path of I'm a chorus guy and I'm going to then understudy and then I'm going to take on the leading part, like what, what one would think of as sort of the trajectory of an actor. You've had a very nonlinear yet very creative path. And I often think that that sometimes the linear path doesn't necessarily lead to as much creativity. So I'm curious, how do you define creativity for yourself? You know, this is very interesting because we just had this tiny little pandemic thing that happened a few years ago. And um, in the middle of the pandemic, well, first of all, the beginning of the pandemic, the very first thing that happened one week into the pandemic, one week into lockdown, my mother passed away from COVID. And I woke up the next day with mm-hmm. COVID. So that's how we knew that she oh, had wow. a nursing home. So here I was trying to deal with the grief of losing my mother after six years of her being in a nursing home after living with me for a year, dementia. She was, you know, it was, it was a relief on many levels because I didn't have that, that pressure to take care of her anymore. But here I am sick with the thing that killed her. Mm. And I was terrified. And it, I, I had long COVID. I, I was sick for almost two months. I went to the hospital twice. They turned me away both times. I went to urgent care once. They wouldn't even let me in the door. They said, you can breathe. Go home and call your GP every single time. And thankfully, that, that helped because all they would have done was put you on a ventilator and, and sedated you until you died because that's all they could do. There was yeah. no, there wasn't even a COVID test at that point. You wow. know, we just knew from the symptoms that my mother had and because it was in a nursing home, it wiped out her entire floor. Like she was the first. So wow. that was the way the pandemic started. And here I was trying to deal with the grief. And then I was, I remember waking up and I'm seeing 104 degrees on my thermometer. And I said, I've got to compartmentalize this. I will grieve for my mother later. I have to care for myself. I have to take care of myself. And I was vague booking at the time because I was very scared about posting online that I had it. And then a friend of mine noticed that I was vague booking. And she texted me and she's like, hey, something's wrong. I know your mom just passed, but something else is going on. Are you okay? It's my dear friend, Phoenix. And uh, she knows me better than most people. I said, yeah, I have COVID and I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I'm old. I'm in the bracket of people that are dying. So she sent me in the mail, like literally the next day arrived this big box of natural remedies and herbs. And it was from a farm in upstate New York. There was one thing called fire cider. There were all these other tinctures that you could take throughout the day. I figured, okay, I'm going to try this because the, the, nobody else was nobody else was offering anything, you know? Yeah. And within a few days of starting that, I started to feel better. And then even though my symptoms were gone, I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't walk more than three blocks to the, to the supermarket. I couldn't go up and down stairs. It took six weeks before I could actually walk to the train. So it was bad and it was scary. And I remember this very specifically because I remember saying that I needed to compartmentalize my grief and I will grieve for my mother another day. The day that we had her funeral, which was a year and a half later, the minister was like, who are we here to celebrate? And I just 
buckets. Like in the, it just hit me all at once because we had lost, we lost six relatives total, two of which we never got to say goodbye to, but they didn't die from COVID. But the, my mother, my mother's sister, my uncle all passed from COVID. And then we lost another relative to cancer and two others. So the table on my mother's gravesite had six urns or in six photos. Oh. So here we were saying goodbye to all the, a generation, basically an entire generation was wiped out and it just hit me all at once because I had to compartmentalize that. But what I did as far as to answer your question by, you know, long way around the question is I started to write, I started writing a cookbook first because I was flooded with, well, what are you doing during the pandemic, but making food? So I was reminded that these recipes and stories that go along with them were part of my past and it was healing. And then it hit me that I was already writing my mother's book for six years. And the book about my mother is called hashtag shit. My mama says, I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. You can absolutely say hashtag <laughs> shit. My mama says, and I'm going to say before you even continue that it's really f-ing funny Thanks. and it's really poignant. And everyone needs to go read this. Now you can continue. Thank you. Yeah, I got, you know, it's so funny because like I went to self-publishing school for a short period of time, like a week of classes. And self-publishing is a great way to be an artist without having to go through jumping through the loops and hoops of getting a publisher, getting an agent, getting somebody to push your book. You are all those people. And so with this book, I started it literally by posting online every interaction with my mom that was funny because she was a very funny woman. And she had all these catchphrases that were just like hysterical. And she would say them straight faced. You know, there's the picture on the cover is her, you know, giving the finger to the, uh, you know, to the audience. So that she was actually giving the finger to the nurse who said it's time to take a shower. But it became this way for me to share her with people and, and, and keep her alive in that way. But it also was healing for me to tell the story of this little scary time in my life and how I turned it into humor. And that was also, the pandemic was this huge pivot for me because not only did I change from dealing with COVID, losing my mom, authoring now two books, but I had hip replacement in 2021 being a full-time trapeze artist, full-time dancer all these years, my body was my instrument. And all of a sudden now this isn't a real part of my body. It's actually illegal to have sex with me because it's under 18 years of age. But anyway, it's that kind of change is what led me to do more stand-up comedy and how I found out that, you know, because we have a lot of time alone during the pandemic, I found out I had voices in my head. But I also found I had voices in my throat. And one of my favorite people in the world is Christina Bianco. She and my partner toured together. So Christina is, as you know, a world-famous impressionist. And so she coached me, and I started to get stand-up gigs doing vocal impressions. So it was a way that I completely turned this very bizarre time in my life back into creativity and learning about art and learning about different types of art that, you know, I was able to do all along. It was very much a Wizard of Oz moment, you know, because it's like, but, you know, you can't learn this in school. You can't learn how to make that decision. And, and, you know, like I said, I make my own schedule. I make my own, I book my own gigs. And 
one of the reasons why the book was so important for me was that I was going to put all of mom's quotes on little note cards for the memorial service and just so everybody would have a few quote, blah, blah, blah. And then a friend of mine was like, no, people who deal with elderly relatives with dementia need some comfort. They need to know that as a caregiver, you know, through all of this too, being a caregiver before mom passed, so you don't have a full-time life. They are your life for the most of that. And um, if there's any caregivers out there, I will say this, check thyself before you wreck thyself. Mm. Because Preach. I was really going through this obsession with being there every single day, advocating for her. And she's in a facility where they have life-saving materials and, and machines and nurses 20 feet away. There's nothing I could do that would save her life, you know what I mean? But I could at least be there to comfort her through, you know, because it's very, it's very disorienting for someone with dementia, especially not knowing where you are, when are you going to go home? You know, she always wanted to go home. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff. So this was really a, I mean, obviously the pandemic I mean, you had a lot happen in a very short time in the pandemic, but really it was the six years leading up to it, because I think you started sharing on social about your mom around 2013 or so, Mm -hmm. because I remember this. Mm -hmm. So it was a process over those years of the, and I, you know, I did a film called Policy of Truth that's a Mm -hmm. a film about dementia Mm -hmm. that I directed. And so I learned a lot. And I also have a, I had a relative with it. My, My grandmother had it. Through my parents, I, I witnessed a lot of this. So it was this, like, long goodbye mm-hmm. in a way. Anticipatory grief. Yes, anticipatory grief. That's a really great way of saying that. So I watched you have that time a bit over those years. But then that pandemic, that's a lot of trauma mm-hmm. that happened all at once. Yeah. And you used, obviously, you found this channel through creativity, through the, the pathway of writing this book. But are you even yet fully aware of all that that trauma has brought you? It's sort of like not seeing the forest from the trees. Yeah. You get so used to it that it becomes second nature. And it's hard to sit back. And I will say this. I follow you, too, on on socials. And there was a big part of the past, I'd say, 10 years, where you always post little bits of wisdom. And I remember them very specifically. And I remember that they took me out of my grief. They took me out of my my moment of self-doubt, self-worth, all that stuff. And it totally, like, I was able to snap out of it, you know, have Cher hit me in the face and say snap out of it. It was those kind of moments that I, I knew I was on the, I knew I was on the right path. I just didn't know yeah. what the result was. You know, like, I still feel like, you know, between this book and my second book that there's a movie in there somewhere. I got chills when you said that. I did. Yeah. I got chills when you said that. Yeah. Like, there is a movie there. There is definitely a film there. There's a – that is a, a lot. Betty Buckley reviewed my book, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Betty Buckley, Dan Goggin, Mark Bego, Bruce Valanche, uh, Lonnie Ackerman just uh, – she got one a copy, and uh, she loved it as well. Yeah. So it's like, I get it. It's not financial success. It's artistic success. Sure. And I find that – even when I was artistically successful, I have a TV. We call it the TV that Pippin paid for. So we have this really nice TV from the 2013 revival of Pippin. I was part of that creative process as a trainer for that show. 
and had a hand in basically their choreography and in their movement through Gypsy Snyder and the, the creative team and Diane Paulus of making those people's acts. It was like the perfect revival ever. That was my biggest financial success, as small as it was. Not saying it was like a million dollars. Like I said, I have a TV. <laughs> but it was this little microcosm of, of how good things can be and how bad they can be all in one. Yeah. So that's nice to have that. And again, it's a resume builder. It's on there. Everyone who knows that show and knows the, how Andrea Martin stopped the show cold every night, I had a hand in that. You had a hand in her standing O. It was a standing O, stop the cold, you know, like really and, stop, like people stood yeah. and applauded. And they were applauding not just her, but your work as well. And that's something that you always have to remember when you're on the other side of the stage, yeah. obviously. I think, though, that you, you hit on something there when you were talking about, you know, creativity and your finances and yeah. how do you navigate that? I know for me, I've taken jobs. I used to take jobs and now I, you know, as an entrepreneur, I create everything. I don't really take jobs anymore. I now create absolutely all of my own work. Mm. But sometimes I, even today, I will create something or take a job because of the finance that can come in. And there's always this push pull in many ways of the art versus the commerce in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I wondered for you, as a trapeze artist, as a dancer, as a writer now, if those questions come up for you. Oh, God, yeah. The problem is, is that I'm still in the game. I'm still playing the game with everybody. I self-published my book, mm -hmm. so I get 60% of the royalties. I'm not sharing that with anybody. Amazon takes their chunk and they send somebody a, a book. It's not a lot of money. It's been a very successful book, though, in the, in the grand scheme of things. It made it to number 13 in Aging Parents on Amazon, which is a good milestone. I've sold roughly two to 2,500 books, plus I'm doing consignments now. I just got my fifth consignment. And a consignment is great because normally the book's $8.99 on Amazon. We can charge $12, $13 on a consignment because they're signed going to a different state so people don't really know me but the book is selling itself but I've had to push that book every single possible way I could just to get it to break even you know to cover yeah. all the costs that went into it you know that is part of it you invest you do have to invest in all of the startup money and you do it when you can well as an entrepreneur because that's what you are now you're a creative entrepreneur in my mind the investment is not only in the financial investment, but it's also investment in time yeah. but and and in energy and the with the idea and the hope and the desire that it will pay itself back in some form or fashion, whether it's financial, sure. maybe for you on this particular book and this particular journey, it was the healing. You can't pay enough. Imagine the therapy bills. You can't pay enough. Because there was that. no therapy at that time. And it became my therapy. Because yeah. it was my way of it was my way of coping, yeah. and what what it started as is I started have sending the PDF before it was published to a group of about fifty people. That's called my launch team, and basically when it, when you have a book launch, indeed, <laughs> yeah. you send a free copy to somebody yeah. and say, "Hey, look at this, read it. If you like it, send me a comment. Sure. If you, you know, once it's published, I need you to send me a review and put yep. it up on or put a review up on Amazon yep. or share it. 
and most of those people did. And a lot of people bought multiple books so they can give them out as presents because it's a, it, you know, it's kind of like that one weird gift that you get that's just poignant when somebody's dealing with dementia. Yeah. And, and a lot of the reviews, there's like 50 plus reviews on Amazon that all talk about how, oh, my dad was just like your mom, or I had the same experience with my mom. It reminded me of this. My mom used to hide silverware in her underwear drawer, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's like there are many ways it's helping people. That's where I get yes. my email addresses on there. When you click on the book, you know how to find me. People send really lovely stories and comments and and it's gotten me on so many different podcasts and i and i've actually this is a one tip that i got from self-publishing school that i really like do 100 podcasts in one year to promote your book there are podcast wow. groups on facebook and i did 110 in a year and a half a year and three months so that was like my, my my barometer now i lost count but they are very you're, – you're reaching a different audience, and yeah. my work is reaching your audience, and your work is reaching my audience because people who know me will, will listen. You know, yeah. It's not like they're here. They'll hear some of the same stories over again, but there's, every podcast has a different vibe. Okay. First of all, for my students out there that are, and clients that are listening, there's some really great things in here to pull out, one of which is the tenacity that you had to say, I'm going to do 100 podcasts in a year. That's one every three days. And to make that happen is really incredible. And that goes back to that discipline thing. I think as a dancer, as a trapeze artist, it's now innate. It's just within you because you practiced it for so long. That's incredible. Also, this idea of that it's collaborative, that it's a give-give, and that you're there to give and serve. I think that's really, really important. Absolutely. And I send yeah. everybody a copy of the book pdf of the book right ahead of time so they get an idea of what they're you know some people it's not their jam and they don't want to focus on it so i get that and i don't begrudge that i'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's fine just like anything else in this world artistically you take the best leave the rest and whatever works for you you have to be able to be objective and my younger self would not allow that yeah it's discernment Right. You have to have discernment. And I yes. think that one of the things that I think a younger version of me as well didn't fully understand was that repelling people is actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. And it took me a really long time because I really and you may remember this about me at 19. I really wanted to be liked more than anything. I did. wanted to be liked. <laughs> you're like, we all did. I, that was that, like bigger than anything. But I carried that for years and years yeah. and years and years. Um, it took many years to sort of unpack and heal that. That's not what yeah. I really was, was searching for. We did a cabaret, and you sang The Kid Inside from yeah. Is There Life After High School. Yeah. You were literally right after high school. But that song is – and Barry Manilow's version of it is so poignant and so beautiful. And I remember those lyrics. For me, high school was, you know, far enough away that it didn't – dawn on me now i listen to that song and i'm like oh my god it's yeah. very very telling first of all i can't believe you have that keen of a memory that you oh, remember yeah. me singing that song 
I didn't even remember that I sang that song. Yes, you did that and the Masochism Tango. That I do remember, <laughs> the Masochism Tango. And I also emceed it, which is yes, even stranger. Did. That I do remember, and that makes more sense to me that I was the master of ceremonies for whatever mm. reason. I like to talk clearly. Yeah. I like to, you know, draw things out of people. But I didn't remember that I sang that song. But mm. now how funny and how weird that I was singing that song because I couldn't have any sense of context about it. That's really fascinating. No, but it was the first time I'd ever heard it. Mm, it's a good song. So when I came back to the city, I immediately looked it up because I thought, oh, you know, this could be something I could have in my book. We were both tenors, so we had yes. some kind of range as far as that goes. I still have my old book. And when I look at some of those songs, I'm like, the only thing that actually still speaks to me is Sucker Born Every Minute from Barnum. That's the one thing I know I can do. And I sing it in Spanish. Oh, my God, that's great. I listen at the door, so if I was called in for Barnum and I heard somebody sing it in English, then I quickly switch to the Spanish version. And I always say, that bitch sang my song, so I'm going to do it in Spanish. And it always gets me a callback. I bet it does, because that's, that's humor, and everyone loves that, let's be honest. That's being different, that's standing out, that's being yourself. Okay, you have another book. Yes. Now that you're a published writer, now you're a published author, you've got another book. Okay, so the second book is not out yet. Okay. We are in the home stretch. I have an amazing mother-daughter team that are helping me pull it together because I will say this, no one does it on their own. And even though shit my mama says is my work and my words, I had a lot of help. I had help compiling all of the quotes. I had help writing the intro. I had help rewriting the intro. So there are so many people to thank and That'll be in my Tony speech. But I've been working on a cookbook called Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food. And basically, this is how the pandemic started for me because everyone needed to eat. Yeah. And there were so many things that we couldn't eat because there was no pasta. There was no soup. There was nothing left on the shelves. There's no toilet paper. You know, so it was like there was all these things. So I was, I was cooking a lot. I was pickling. I was canning. I was trying to do all the things that I knew how to do from, from when I was a kid with my mom and my grandmother. And then all the stories that came creeping in that my mother had her own group of stories. But like in between each recipe, there are funny family stories. My first words, my first words were f***ing reindeer. And so that whole story <laughs> is oh my like. my God, that's hilarious. There. And time I'm backstage and I'm about to go on in a, in a circus, and my grandmother calls my answering service, and she's like, call me right away. And it turned out that my dog had been molested by a groundhog that day. So there's all these crazy stories. There's a story about my mother told me in, you know, that, that I was conceived on a beaver dam. You know, so there's all these like family stories that were flooding back that were so ridiculous that it to me, the, the, the next book, the second book that's almost ready, I really want to get it out by Christmas just because I like to do things on holidays. So, like, I released my mother's book on her birthday. So the, the launch was on her birthday on August 7th, and it was a week before her funeral, which was August 14th of that year. We are in the home stretch, though. Uh, my friend Stacy and her mom are geniuses, but no one does it alone because this is not my wheelhouse. I'm not a writer, I'm not a chef, but I made this happen. So I think I think you can't actually say I'm not a writer because now you have two two books. Yes, 
I'm not a technical writer. You're not a traditional technical writer. That I'll give you, but you can't say I'm not a writer. Yeah, but but I, I can say this. I learned so much in the time process of both of those that I felt like I went to grad school exactly. for writing because, yeah. it, you know, like everybody has Grammarly on their computer or some form of grammar type of program to fix things. But the one thing that an editor can never take away from you is your voice. Yeah. And you have to speak as if you're telling the story to somebody who's sitting next to you. Nor can AI. No. I do relate to what you're saying of, oh, I'm not a writer, because, you know, I, despite the fact that I have now directed three films, I don't feel like I'm a filmmaker. Like, it's not my first and foremost, right? Yes, I've made films. But I think part of that is because both of us have such a long history in something else. Yeah. You know, when you were first starting as a dancer, you didn't say, I'm not really a dancer. I've only, I've only done two shows. Right. You didn't say that. But no. now because of this long career that you've had, that we both have had in the, the theater, and that, that had been our, or has been our primary, you know, it, it's harder to say I'm also a writer or I'm also a filmmaker in that right. sense because of the years yeah. that you have invested in a career. But if you were early on in your career, otherwise you wouldn't say that. Do you know what I'm saying? Not at all. Somebody in a podcast called me the multi-hyphenated artist. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, I'll, I, I own it. The one thing I will say is that, do you know the film Moonstruck? Of course, yeah. Okay. And do you know the film A Christmas Story? Yes, of course. So the farcical nature of Christmas Story meets Moonstruck. So my, I'm Sicilian, so my, okay. my family's Italian. So this, even though there's recipes, the stories are as if Moonstruck and Christmas Story had a baby. That's the that's why I say there's a film somewhere in, in, in both of these books, and Betty Buckley has to play my mom. Um, but, but, but it's just like those are the key moments where you, you're inspired by all, these, all this other art and these beautiful you – know, pe- there are people out there who went to school for writing. They know how to you know, mm-hmm. do sentence structure. They know, how to, they know how to make a story happen. I didn't do that. I told stories in the best possible way that I know how. And, and that's why I said, like, yes, it may not, there are certain things that may not be grammatically correct, but it's still my voice. It's my voice as told, you know, as if you were listening to me as Ralphie from uh, Christmas Story. You know, I am the, the, the narrator and the star of the book. Well, I'll tell you as a reader, Somebody who speaks from the heart and with the truth is far more engaging and important to me than the proper grammar or sentence structure. So, yes, I got that literary thing. Yeah. But I also believe that when you share your stories, and my clients and students will again tell you, would tell you this, that I, first and foremost, it's all about coming from the heart. And that's exactly where this book is coming from. So both of your books are really from the heart. I lived with my grandmother in the 70s. So this was our time together. She taught me how to cook. She taught me how to sew. It's that time period of living with her. It was healing to go back. And that's why I say Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir in food. It's going back to the mountain and, you know, being able to relive those moments with my grandmother and my parents as well 
my mother was the queen of living on a budget and you know how do you feed a family on two dollars a week in 1970 you know my mother was the queen of that she was a yeah. coupon cutter and she was able to can food for the season freeze food for the season like we, we didn't know we were poor you know that was one of the great things about my mother was that she never let us know that we were poor mm. she was so frugal and the ways that she conserved food and we grew our own stuff we grew we had a farm we had livestock we didn't know how important that was. You were organic before organic was organic. And that is in my book, believe it or not. That does not surprise. My mother never used commercial fertilizer. We had chickens, so you used chicken manure. I love it. Okay, so you are a multi-passionate, multi-hyphenate creative. I call myself the same because I've had many iterations. You have. And many versions of myself. I've stretched myself in many ways as an artist, some more successful than others, of course. But I, too, feel like a multi-hyphenate, multi-passionate person walking this planet, a creative being. But I think that comes from living in New York, that you'll, if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. We had to always pivot to make ends meet. So whether you were shooting an industrial that day or working at Uncle Charlie's bar downtown slinging cocktails, or at a burger joint, whatever we were doing, we were able to survive. We were trained survivalists. Like people talk about boomers and Gen X. I'm like, yeah, don't f with Gen X because we, we know how to survive. We do. And, you know, we will be like cockroaches and share after the apocalypse. We'll be here. Yeah. All right. Quick final three questions, if you don't mind playing the game. I, th I throw it out. You say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. First is, who would you like to collaborate with that you haven't yet? You. <laughs> well, that was fast. Well, we're collaborating right now. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Second, what is your next great manifestation? What are you creating next? That is actually a very interesting question because as a non-writer, <laughs> I actually wrote, I now have an outline for the book of a musical. And it is a Mamma Mia style musical that takes place in a fictitious festival like, like Burning Man. And it's a love story of men in their 50s. Oh, my God. I love – I'm not a writer. Well, okay, maybe I'm writing a book. Okay, maybe I'm writing a book to a musical. It's funny. My book was written on my phone in the notes well, section. There's no one way to do this. Yeah. There's no one way. So, yeah. So that is – it struck me when I was out there the very last time. I love Burning Man. I go go every year. I did not go this past year, thank God. But there are so many ways that people connect out there, and I've seen, I've seen and witnessed romance and people not only hooking up but hooking up for life as partners. Yeah. And I just felt like there's this beautiful background for a love story. You know, it's like an EDM version of La Caja Faux. A dance version of men in their 50s who find love in the desert. I love it. Anyway, but that is the next project. And final question is a fill in the blank, actually. Okay. The fill in the blank is this. I am. I mean, I have to go back to being clear, honest, and loving with myself that, yes, I'm a multi-hyphenated artist. I'm an artist of all mediums. And some mediums I don't even know I know yet are part of my part of my mediums. 
but I am and always will be to the day I die. This will be on my tombstone if I have one, an artist. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here today. And, Thanks for uh, having me. I'm so glad this worked sharing. out. Me too. So glad it worked out. Okay, so where can the audience find you that want to go follow you, want to go buy your books? Because I know they're going to want to after – I mean, I'm telling you, hashtag shit my mama says is both funny and poignant. I really loved it. I really did. And I don't, I don't always say that on, on these shows. I appreciate that so much because, like I said, it's a little, it's a little love letter to my mom. Yeah. Who deserved more fame than she – she's more famous now, and she's in more countries than she's ever been in her entire life. So. I love it. So where can they find you? First of all, when you search on Amazon, search hashtag shit my mama says. Don't just search shit my mama says. You won't get me. It's on Amazon, and then you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, two places, at Bobby Hedgeland Taylor or at Escape to Ravioli Mountain. And those three social media platforms. Very good. Thank you again so much. And thank you for uh, listening to today. I know you enjoyed this conversation because there were so many golden nuggets there. Be sure to DM me your favorite moment, what you took away from today's episode. Give us a review and pass this on to some multi-hyphenate, multi-passionate creative who really needs to listen to the story today. We'll see you next time.